There are going to be two readings today. And the first is from Exodus, and it's chapter 16, verses 1 to 18. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, Oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Uh, the second reading is from 2 Corinthians. We're reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability... 
Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this grace, in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eagerness, eager willingness to do it might be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. I thank God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you, For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are our representatives of the churches and an honour to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. This is God's word. It would be good if you have that second reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 open, please. The uh, challenge that I have is how to persuade you to give. You're not giving enough, you rotten old lot. And my job is to try to persuade you. The story is told of two barristers. One was a legendary fundraiser. He could persuasively wheedle money out of anybody. The other barrister was a wealthy man, but he was legendary for his tight-fistedness. And finally the meeting came. The fundraiser met over a drink, the tight-fisted barrister, to try to persuade him to give to some charity. He used all his charms on him and his persuasiveness. And after a while, the tight-fisted one said, My friend, you are wasting your time. 
You need to understand that I have a mother who is recently widowed and in great financial need. I have five brothers and sisters struggling to bring up uh, young families on income support and two of them homeless. You need to understand that for the past 20 years I've managed not to give a penny to any of them. So you have no, <laughs> so you have no chance. Fundraising has been described as the persuasive extracting money out of the reluctant. And I want to begin by asking us to think about the difference between giving and buying. And you say to yourself, well, that's obvious. When I buy, I hand over money and somebody hands something over to me. I go into a shop, I hand over some money, I buy a trolley load of food, whatever it may be. It's a, it's a deal. I give in order that I might get. Nothing wrong with that. That's, that's what buying is. But giving isn't like that, we say naively. Giving is just giving, not in order to get. Or is it? I might give in order to get you off my back. You know those charity muggers, as they're called, by London Bridge Station. And I give so that I can have the peace of mind of just getting them off my back. That I give in order to get. Or I might give in order to get a good feeling about myself. A charity sends me a pen that I don't particularly want, or a CD or some Christmas cards, and I feel bad about keeping them. Um, so I send them some money, and I feel better. I give in order to get uh, a good feeling. If I were a celebrity, which I'm not, I might get social credibility. You might think that I was a waster, but then I give. Oh, I give in the full glow of the lights. And then you begin to think that I'm credible. Or I might give in order to get influence. I might give to a political party. The trades unions don't give to the Labour Party just out of the kindness of their hearts. They do it to get influence. If I were rich enough, I might give to a political party. And I would expect to have some say in their policies. I might give in order for people to know how good I am. If I give to an old university or... or school or something, I might get my name in the list of donors to the appeal. might even get an asterisk against my name. I remember once my old college had a list of um, donors and the, it said asterisk indicates a gift in excess of £100,000. Marvellous. Wouldn't that be good to be there with the asterisk? But it can get into church life as well. I might give and just make sure that the pastoral leadership of the church know that I've given. And I just might expect to have a tad more influence. Come sit here on the church council. Come sit here on the eldership. Come sit here and have influence that those who haven't given so much don't have. I might give in order that I can be proud about our church and how well our church is doing. There are all sorts of reasons we can give in order to get. But why would you give if you're not going to get anything? That's the challenge of Christian giving. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is a pretty well-off city. It's a trading port. It's a little bit like London. Not quite as much so, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful, rich place. And it seems that the church were, were pretty well off by and large. At least some of them were. And the problem is that the church in Jerusalem, for various reasons, seems to be very, very poor. 
and has been right from the beginning of the Christian church after the persecution when Stephen was martyred in Acts um, chapter 7. We read later that they were, they were pers- there was a big persecution. And when the Apostle Paul began going around the Gentile world, around the Mediterranean, the, the, the church in Jerusalem, the leaders, said to him, please remember the poor, by which they meant the poor Christians in Jerusalem who are persecuted and t- having a tough time. Please remember them. And Paul said, yes, I'll be glad to do that. And he did. And one of the really big things he did in his, in his mission trips was to, 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 to do a collection. You read about him in 1 Corinthians 16, you read about it in Romans 15. Quite a big deal for Paul, and here in 2 Corinthians. He went around the Gentile churches saying, let's give. Let's give to support the poor Christians in um, Jerusalem. And the thing about that gift is that there was no payback for it. He was saying to them, would you give, not to make your churches bigger or better, uh, not in order that you'll get a good reputation, put your money into a big multi-church pot and we'll, we'll take it to Jerusalem to people you've never met who are completely different from you and we'll look after them because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not going to get anything from this. So it's quite a difficult ask. And I want us to learn this week and next how Paul asked, does this giving ask, this money ask, because it's very, very illuminating. And it will help us to see that real Christian giving is utterly different from the way the, 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 the world outside raises money. Utterly different. Like chalk and cheese, it is a completely different thing, Christian giving, when it is properly understood. And the main point I want to make, I think Paul makes right up front, is that grace overflows. So verse 1, he says, now brothers, he's just affirmed the church at the end of chapter 7. He said, I'm glad I can have confidence in you. And he says, now, I want you to know, I want to tell you a story I want to tell you a story about the Macedonian churches. That's up to the north, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, which weren't particularly poor places, but the churches were poor because they were persecuted, it seems. And he says, I want you to learn, I want you to know about the grace that God has given them. I want you to know about the free generosity that God has given them and what happened when God gave them his free generosity when they opened their hearts to his free generosity in Jesus. And he says, I want to tell you about something which is astonishing, miraculous. Out of the most severe trial, verse 2, Paul said back in chapter 7, he said, when we came to Macedonia, to this area, it was really tough, and it seems there was a vicious persecution, and it was a really tough place to be a Christian, like trying to be a Christian in Saudi Arabia. Miserable place to be a Christian, or or parts of Iraq and Syria. Really tough. And an extreme trial. But what I noticed when I went there was that they had overflowing joy (laughs) and extreme rock-bottom poverty, and it welled up or overflowed in rich generosity. Extraordinary paradox. I I want to tell you what I saw. I saw men and women who were rock-bottom poor, who were under great pressure, having a really tough time, and I saw that they were full of joy and amazingly generous. And it was astonishing. 
And I'm not telling you this to make you feel guilty, he implies. I just want to tell you this so you can have a look with me. Because I testify, verse 3, they gave as much as they were even, even beyond their ability, more than they could really afford. Entirely on their own, I didn't have to lean on them. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the saints. That's the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So, so Paul, I imagine, had told them, well, we know later, he'd, he'd told them about the collection and that he was going to Corinth and hoping that the rich Christians in Corinth would give. But I don't think he expected the poor persecuted Christians in Macedonia to give. They hadn't got any money to give. And they, they said, no, no, let us, let us. He didn't have to lean on them or persuade them. He said, no, no, please, please let us, they said. Please let us give. And and, and they did this not as we, we expected. They exceeded our expectations, verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and then to us. So God poured into their hearts free forgiveness and all the blessings in Jesus. And they gave themselves to the Lord Jesus in their hearts And then because they recognized that Paul the Apostle was the Apostle of Christ, they gave themselves to Paul and his project and his giving, and it was a wonderful thing. They didn't give in order to get. They gave because they had received. Now, there's a little indication. You you might say, why? Because it's a fascinating thing that all the statistics on giving indicate that there's an inverse correlation between wealth and generosity. You're aware of that, aren't you? That the studies that are done on giving indicate there's an inverse correlation. By and large, the richer people are, the more stingy they are. There's just a little hint in one of Paul's letters to the churches in Macedonia. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, he says to them, you, you lot, you suffered from your own countrymen the same Troubles, the same things that that, that the churches in Judea, Jerusalem and so on, suffered from their countrymen, the Jews. And I wonder if that's just a hint that these, these people in Macedonia, they knew what it was like to be a Christian enduring tough times. They understood that on the inside from their own experience. And therefore, when they heard about other Christian brothers and sisters having tough times, they said, yes, now I know what that feels like. I'd love to help them. And it's one of the strange ironies of wealth and comfort that it isolates us. And we, we begin to lose a sympathetic understanding of what it's like to be a Christian having tough times. And these, uh, these, these Macedonian Christians um, understood that. So Paul says, I want you to know that. And therefore, verse, seven, we, verse 6, we urge Titus. He'd earlier made a beginning uh, with the collection in Corinth. And we urged him to, to, to go back and bring it to completion, this act of grace on your part. We'd seen the miracle of grace at work, and we asked him to go back to you. And so he says, verse 7, and here's the ask, just as you excel, you overflow in everything. And there's a little bit of irony here. You overflow in faith and uh, Speech, that is, probably miraculous speech activities, spiritual gifts and knowledge, probably miraculous knowledge, kind of stuff if you read 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth had going on and rather loved. They were really rather pleased about it all. It made their church quite an impressive, buzzy kind of place. And earnestness and zeal and love 
but see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And I think what he's saying to them is this. You, you guys know what it is to have God at work amongst you, but your eyes are always on what makes your church grow and what makes your church buzz and what makes your church develop and so on. But I want you to understand that it's the nature of God's grace that when he pours his generosity into us, it overflows outwards. I want you to excel in this grace of giving. I want you to understand that when God is at work in human hearts, he pours his free generosity in, and that free generosity always overflows out. And I want you to learn to excel like that. That's the key thing that he's, he's saying. Now, it's easy to misunderstand this. And in verses 8 onwards, he, he, he tackles some misunderstandings. Here's the first one, and this is verses 8 and 9. Grace is not because I'm told to. See, he says, verse 8, I'm not commanding you. Paul was an apostle. He had the authority to command. He could command with the authority of Christ. But he says, no, I'm not going to command you. I just want to test the genuineness, the sincerity of your love. In other words, I've told you a story of, some, uh, of a bunch of people who bear the hallmark of real grace. That's what's going on in Macedonia. You've got the, the hallmark of authentic grace. God's generosity poured in, generosity poured out. That's real grace. I want you to put yourself next to them and see if you've got real grace to test the genuineness of what's going on in your lives, your Christian lives. And if you really want to know what grace is, he says, verse 9, he goes right back to the source, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Macedonia is wonderful, what was happening there. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is more wonderful still. He was rich, but for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This is grace at its source. And I want you to understand that that's your Christian lives. Grace poured in, grace poured out. So it's not because I'm telling you to, you don't have to do it. Absolutely fine. Cancel your standing orders. Um, cancel your giving. You can stop everything today. Pastoral leadership may not thank me for saying that, but that's, that's, that's it. You can just stop. All of us here could just stop all our giving today. You don't have to. You absolutely don't have to. But uh, I just want you to see what real grace is and test whether you've got real grace going on in your lives. Second misunderstanding, verses 10 and 11, it's not because I feel like it. I think what's going on here is sentimentality. So verse 10 he says, Here's my advice or my judgment about what's best for you. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but to have the desire to do so. In other words, last year when, uh, I guess, Titus went and introduced the collection, they, 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 they heard about the needs in Judea and their hearts were warmed and they said, yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to give. And maybe they began to. Now he says, finish the work, verse 11 so that your willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. So here's the thing. It's one thing to have a sentimental impulse response to an appeal. And we all know this, don't we? You know those times where you, you, you hear about some need and your heart is warmed and you think, yeah, 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 I'll give. 
Hundred pounds, a thousand pounds, ten thousand. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give. Yeah, wonderful. And then you just have a good night's sleep, and you wake up in the cold light of the next morning, and you think, ah, I don't want to be over the top. Just maybe fifty pounds instead of that hundred, maybe five hundred instead of that thousand, and you just. You just sort of calm the whole thing down because it was an impulse. It was a sentimental thing. Are you like that? Maybe none of you like that. Maybe you're steady people. But I'm like that. I, I feel impulsive. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I give lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. Um, and then the next morning I think, no, maybe not. <laughs> and I think Paul is saying that real grace giving is a steady thing. It's a direction of life. It's not an impulse and a sentiment. Finish the work. You were very excited a year ago, he says. Now finish the work. Continue it. Here's the third misunderstanding, verses 12 to 15. It's not not because it's good for me to be miserable. So at the end of verse 11, he says a strange thing, your completion of it according to your means. In other words, what you can afford. Because if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he doesn't have. Why does he say that? I'm not quite sure, but I, I, I imagine some of them were thinking, oh, Paul, you just want to make us poor. I came across a cartoon of two men coming out of church. They were just coming out at the end of a church service. Uh, one had a Bible under his arm. Um, they were dressed only in their boxers. And one man turns to the other man, uh, dressed in their boxes, and says, that was the best sermon on giving I've ever heard. <laughs> and some people think that's what giving is all about. I'm just trying to make, you're just trying to make, make us poor. You're just trying to make us miserable, you rotten old ascetic. You know, that, that, that kind of, of, of thing. And I think Paul is saying no. And so he clarifies, verse 13, it's not uh, that we want, verse 13, that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Not literal numerical equality, but fairness, an evening out of things. At the present time, you're plenty, you've got plenty in Corinth, will supply what they need. Maybe the time will come when their plenty will supply what you need, who knows? But there'll be equality. And he quotes from that Old Testament passage we had from the Exodus, the manor in the wilderness. The one who gathered much didn't have too much, and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. And I think the point is this. In the Exodus, it seems to have been, I think, a miraculous thing, that, that, that however much you gathered, you found that everybody had the right amount in, in some way. But it expresses the will of God for his people. And the will of God for his people, we'll, we'll think more about this next week, is that, is that he sometimes gives more than enough to some of his people so they can share it with others. And other times it's the other way around, so that there's a sharing of, amongst Christian people, so that Christian people care for Christian people worldwide. That, I think, is the, the clarification there. And then grace overflows. It's not because I'm told you, you tell me to. It's not just sentiment. It's not because you want to make me miserable. But there's a, there's a belonging thing, a worldwide church thing. And I want to try and open this up from verse 16. Verse 16 onwards, Paul, um, I want us to notice as we go through these, this last section, the repeated references to the churches. 
Have a look as we go through the, the churches. And when Paul says the churches, perhaps he means the churches that he particularly has founded and so on. But it's shorthand really for all the Christian churches. And for us it's shorthand for all the Christian churches throughout the world. And the immediate point Paul is making is that he's, the collection is going to be looked after responsibly by trustworthy people. He, he mentions three. Verse 16, 17, Titus. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have. He didn't just welcome our appeal. He's coming. He's enthusiastic. You you can trust him. Then there's an anonymous one in 18 and 19. He won't have been anonymous to them, but Paul doesn't name him in the letter. He'll have gone with Titus, carrying the letter. Titus will have introduced him. Verse 18, we're sending along with Titus the brother who is praised by all the churches. He has a wide reputation in Christian churches, not just one local church, but widely for his service to the gospel. What's more, verse 19, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us carrying the offering. And we're administering it to honor the Lord and so on. So on. Now here's the thing. We often say, and rightly, that the local church is the key unit of Christian gospel work. That's where relationships are, that's where evangelism is done, that's where people hear, become Christians, grow, and so on. The local church is the key thing. But we mustn't be so local church focused that we forget the churches, that we're part of a Christian churches worldwide. And there is such a thing as a wider recognition. That's what ordination is, actually. Ordination is recognition not just by one local church, but by Christian churches more widely of somebody's um, being set apart for pastoral oversight. And these guys were set apart by the churches for a responsible stewardly oversight to make sure the collection, a lot of money, that it was looked after properly and that none of it stuck to, to anyone's fingers on the way. So verse 20, we want to avoid criticism. It's a liberal gift. It's a, it's a generous, big, Gift, and we want to avoid criticism. We want to make sure that it's properly looked after. We want to make sure everybody can see that it's being done responsibly, verse 21. Not just God, but also people. And then there's a third one in verse 22. Another brother, he's proved in many ways he's zealous, and he has great confidence in you. And then he goes through them all in verse 23. Titus, he's my partner, fellow worker, and the, the, the brothers, the other two, they're representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. So honor them, prove, show them the proof of your love and, and do the right thing when they come to, to do the collection. But the point is that grace overflows, but grace is a corporate thing and it's a belonging thing to a worldwide church. I think that's the dimension that I, that, that I want to, to highlight really in this, 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 this point at the end. It's a worldwide thing. It's a caring for Christians worldwide. It's a belonging to the worldwide church. So friends, what do we do about this ourselves? Paul says to them in verse 11, finish the work. They've started on a collection. He says, now finish it. What's it going to mean for us? Here are three um, pointers for us. First of all, it's going to mean honesty. It's going to mean our being honest about these things, just as the Corinthians needed to be. A friend told me of a Christian 
um, who was a guest preacher in a prosperous church in a wealthy suburb of a wealthy country. And uh, during the notices when he was the visiting preacher, uh, a prayer request was read out from a link church in a poor area of the city asking prayer for a project needing $4,000. And the church secretary turned to the visiting preacher and said, could you lead us in in saying a prayer um, for for this $4,000? And the visiting preacher said, no, certainly not. You've got $4,000 here. Why don't you just give it now? There's no need to pray for it. Why don't you just give it now? Which was a sort of reality check for them. And with no difficulty, they gave it with no particular cost. Nobody had to do without lunch. Um, nobody didn't have a bed for the night. It was no problem. They gave the $4,000 just there and then without any difficulty because the visiting preacher was rude and called their bluff. <laughs> I would never have the nerve to do that. But it's good, isn't it? There's an honesty about it. So there's one thing. Second, it'll mean lifting our eyes to the worldwide church. It's hard to imagine what a stretch it must have been for Gentile churches to give money for a Jewish church in Jerusalem. It's hard to imagine, really, the cultural barriers you'd need to overcome to give to people who were not remotely like you whose circumstances were different, most of whose fellow countrymen were hostile and persecuting you. Incredible stretch to do that for the, for the, 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 the church in Jerusalem. It's a wonderful thing when Christian churches, and of course we see this here and in other churches many of us have belonged to, when we lift our eyes beyond ourselves, to, to, to Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, and we care for them when we get nothing back. I remember once Carolyn and I belonged to a church which gave away more than 50% of its entire income. There may have been particular reasons for that. It was in a prosperous area and the people were quite comfortably off and so on. But it was rather exhilarating <laughs> to belong to a church that gave away more than half of all the income that came into the church. No, you don't have to, even if I was your pastor, which I'm not. I couldn't command you. Um, your pastor might wish to command you, but he can't. It doesn't work. He wouldn't pay any attention if he did. Isn't that right, Matt? They wouldn't listen anyway. <laughs> but he wouldn't. But it's, it's an exhilarating and a wonderful thing to lift our eyes beyond ourselves and, and, and to, to, to make it our ambition to give, really give, not so that we get but just as the outflow of grace. And that's my third and final takeaway, really, that the biggest thing we need to learn from this is to open ourselves to the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because the strange paradox of Christian giving is that it's not giving in order to get, whether that's prestige or credibility or influence or just a good feeling, It's not giving in order to get. It's not a kind of masquerade for buying. It is the outflow of the free grace of God in Jesus coming into us. And therefore the strange paradox is that the best thing I can do and the best thing a Christian preacher can do is to exhort and encourage us to open our hearts to the free grace of God in Jesus. And the more deeply God makes us aware of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich for our sakes became poor so that 
through his poverty we might, we might become rich. The more we open our hearts, the more we see our need, the more God touches our hearts with the wonder of the free grace that he pours into our hearts, of free forgiveness, the wonder of calling God Father, the assurance of security for eternity, all the wonders of what we have in Christ. There is perhaps no need for exhortation to give, because the more deeply you and I are, are, are thrilled and amazed and full of joy and wonder at the free grace of God to us, you and I will find that miracle begins to happen that happened in Macedonia and our lives will begin to flow out in grace to others in different ways, different stages of life, different ways, different ways in which we're enabled to give. We'll think about that next week. But that's the, that's the paradox. So Christian giving is diametrically opposed to the kind of fundraising that happens in the world outside and sometimes happens in Christian churches. They're not here, thank God. Christian giving is diametrically different. Christian giving is not giving in order to get. Christian giving is giving as the outflow of what we have ourselves been given in Jesus. And that is a wonderful thing. Let's be quiet for a moment and uh, I'll lead us in a prayer. God our Father, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our feelings, our affections might be touched and shaped and directed by the wonder of that grace. And that in our lives too, that Macedonian miracle might happen, that whatever our circumstances, that free, generous grace might pour out from us to others. For Jesus' sake. Amen.